Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. If you're local to the San Francisco Bay Area, UP Academy, our progressive elementary school, is now enrolling for fall of 2022. And we'd love to have you watch for the Rebel Educator book launch coming in March of 2022. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator podcast. Welcome Rebel Educators. I am here today with Nicole Dyson. Nicole is a globally recognized expert and practitioner in project-based learning and youth entrepreneurship. She's the founder of Future Anything, an award-winning curriculum-aligned entrepreneurship program for high school students, the founder of YouthX, Australia's only startup accelerator program for school-aged entrepreneurs, and the founder of Catapult Cards, a design thinking tool for corporations and classrooms. As a teacher in the USA, the UK, and Australia, as well as head of department and head of year at some of Queensland's top performing public schools, Nicole has repeatedly led the design and implementation of whole school changes to support future-ready learning, placing young people at the forefront of co-designing contextually relevant learning experiences. Nicole passionately pushes the boundaries around the future of our education system and believes the best education empowers young people to bend the future one youth-led idea at a time. Welcome, Nicole. Oh, thank you so much. It's so great to be here and, and yeah, to have a conversation across the globe. How good is digital technology? I know. It's been amazing. I will say this is the thing that I know is most hated, but is also, I think, most loved <laughs> that has come out of COVID is that suddenly having conversations around the globe or just picking up with someone who, you know, you maybe haven't met before for 30 minutes is a normal thing. Totally agree. And I think it may be just um, taken down the barriers to connection in some ways. But I know there's certainly a, a boundary around overuse. I think some of us are a little bit zoomed out as well. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I love the connection. I love the lack of barrier. But I also find if it's more than like three and a half hours a day is my max on Zoom. It takes a different level of energy to kind of connect through the screen, I think, um, and particularly if you're running like digital facilitation, which obviously educators have had to sort of dive into with COVID. You don't get that energy back in the exchange, which I think can be a really different experience for both sides of the conversation. Oh, interesting. I know that it's energy sapping and I hadn't thought of it in that way because when you interact with an actual human, you are like you have their energy around you and there's that exchange, I guess is the word I'm looking yeah. for, that exchange of energy that, yeah, you don't get from a glass screen and a metal box. Mm, definitely. It's something that I've reflected on. I think maybe we forget how much energy we get by being in the classroom, whether it's with young people or educators, those instantaneous exchanges that occur by making eye contact or that little smile or that like moment where you see, you know, a young person really jam on what you're saying. They all feed that classroom culture that you're building in the space. And it's much harder to do virtually, especially when it's you in a little box and then you've got 25 other little boxes in front of you. You don't even know. Making eye contact, I think, is complex. So then those energy exchanges are fewer and far between. Yeah, we talked a lot about that when we went to online learning and how all of kind of the micro 
exchanges just disappeared and all those things that you learn about your students and you learn about each other just by passing each other in the room or in the hallway or making a quick connection and all of that was suddenly gone and it had to be very intentional if you wanted to try and connect with someone. Absolutely. I think all the incidental things that great educators do without really thinking about it to build relationships suddenly had to be done. Yeah, you're right. You had to carve out a specific place within that digital space in order to create those micro moments that happen so organically when you're in the room. I'm sure Future Anything transformed and recreated itself and figured out a way to continue with student-led ideas through the pandemic. But I'd love to take a step backward and talk about kind of where you came up with the idea, how it was born, and what led you to come up with the idea to launch the initiative. I was a classroom teacher here in Australia working in schools in Queensland, and I kind of came to teaching a little bit late. So I started a degree in science. I thought I wanted to be a vet. I think everybody at some point wants to save the animals as a child. And then found myself a bit disconnected from the university experience and kind of went overseas. And actually, it was working in summer camps in the US, particularly working with 15 and 16-year-olds that had me question whether education might be a place I'd like to play in. I really enjoyed building a relationship with young people and then seeing them flourish or thrive and do something that they didn't think that maybe they'd be able to do. So I came back and and did a teaching degree and, and found myself in schools a little bit later than perhaps other graduates. And one thing that struck me as soon as I walked into the classroom was how disconnected the curriculum was from the real world. And um, I found myself being asked quite frequently by young people, why are we doing this? And of course, you know, as the new grad, you say all the right things. You know, it's really important to learn how to learn and you don't know when you might need this later. But the reality was, you know, I was working with young people who had a literacy age of of maybe grade four or grade five that were in grade nine, they were being asked to look at novels that were beyond their reading levels. You know, the boys were studying a book that had a female protagonist and the tap-in point for them was just not there. And so because they couldn't find the relevance for the learning content, obviously we saw disengagement from the classroom. And then particularly with boys, when we have disengagement, obviously we have some of those behavioral elements come out and into the play. So for me, I had a bit of an epiphany moment where I was teaching an all-boys year nine English class and two boys had stayed back at lunchtime to finish some work that they hadn't completed. They'd taken one of those like 10-minute bathroom breaks where they go via the water bubbler on the other side of the school before they returned to the class. And one of the boys looked up at me and asked that question again, why are we doing this? And, And in that moment in time, I sort of paused and thought about the context that we were operating in and I didn't have an answer. And I remember saying, because we have to, and I'm sorry. And that was a bit of a pivot point for me because I asked myself the question, well, did we have to? Did I have to teach the curriculum as it had been laid out for me? Or was there an opportunity for me to diversify the offering for young people so that they could find the tap-in point they were craving from their educational experience? So at that point in time, the boys were doing a novel study They were supposed to write an analytical essay. I don't even think they could say analytical essay, let alone write an entire analytical essay. And um, I rerouted the curriculum piece so that the boys used the novel as a launching pad to find a graphic novel that they loved and then deliver me a persuasive speech that convinced me why that graphic novel should be turned into a movie and how it would engage the next generation in a particular theme that was relevant for, for them. 
And they still got all of the essentials that we needed to. We still did the text analysis. They still had to do an analysis and evaluation of why the graphic novel should be turned into a film. We got them stepping up and presenting their ideas. So from a curriculum checkpoint, you know, all the benchmarks were met. But the learning journey was so much more interesting uh, for those young people. And that kind of started a journey for me in looking at how we could reimagine assessment tasks so that there was a real-world relevance for the learners that were in the room. And I fell into using entrepreneurship as that vehicle many years later. And in that way, found an opportunity for us to use curriculum as a problem context. So if we're studying tectonic plates and ecosystems, rather than just having students regurgitate that content back to me, could we challenge young people with coming up with an innovative idea that made the impact from bushfires less damaging? Um, and so they would have to use all of that rich curriculum that we'd studied, but then put them through a design thinking framework that gave them the freedom and the space and the support to come up with their own solutions to the problems that we'd studied. And that's could have grown from sort of one school and 100 students. And this year we worked with 4,000 students across 46 schools in Australia. And next year we're piloting with five international schools. So, you know, I think teachers are really loving the opportunity to deliver a rich curriculum, but find the space for their young people to be creative and collaborative and critical thinkers through that curriculum vehicle. That's a great illustration of, I think, what's happening in so many teachers' classrooms with students asking, why are we doing this? And the answer always coming back, well, it's in the curriculum. Well, this is the way it's always been done. Well, this is just what we teach. I think most people in project-based learning talk a lot about, you know, what are those core things that we're trying to teach and how can we do that in a more relevant and interesting and, and challenge appropriate way, right? Like you talked about, they're doing a ninth grade book, but they're really at a fourth grade level. That's not the appropriate challenge level. So how can we hit those standards and learn what we need to learn, but do it in a way that's fun and interesting? Totally agree. And I think, look, as a first year teacher, I used to think that the classroom had to be fun for students to be engaged. So I had to create these amazing cahoots or these quiz experiences or, you know, have like lunchtime parties or like this was the way to create engagement. And through growing into the role of an educator, I've realized that true engagement comes from young people seeing purpose in their learning. So if they don't have to love the content, but if they can see that it's relevant and purposeful for them to engage with it, then they will. And so I think for most young people, it's that real world link. Like, can I see how I might use this in the future? If so, they're willing to walk alongside you in that learning journey. But if the disconnect is there and they can't see any relevance for that learning content, then they're out. And so I think it's really important that we create that relevance. So as you created Future Anything, if I'm understanding correctly, YouthX is kind of the next step of that. So for students that get really into it, get a project or a business idea or a thing that they really want to explore and dive into further, then they can apply to be into the YouthX program. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, you know, as a classroom teacher, we, we run these like amazing projects, perhaps. Um, but the reality is once that term ends, we kind of need to roll into the next piece of curriculum. And I wondered what happened to those young people that got really excited by the project that they developed. Could we provide the space and support for those young people to do something with the ideas that they generated? And at the moment in Australia, there's a number of providers who do sort of these week-long incursions. So it's a, you know, a week-long accelerator over the holidays which gives students a boost but doesn't really have that long-term engagement that I think young people need to continually incrementally grow their ideas. 
So that's where YouthX kind of arrived. Could we take young people who were super enthusiastic and work with them over an eight to 12 month period to kind of map their progression as both a young person and a leader and also as a business owner and an entrepreneur? Do you have any examples or can you share a story or a case study of a project from a student that maybe started out in future anything and moved through and has really become a thing? (laughs) Yeah, we've got quite a few now because we're sort of five years deep in running the program. So we're starting to see these like beautiful legacy pieces come out of the curriculum. And I think what's really interesting to explore is that a lot of our schools don't run this program in business as an elective. We're actually embedded within subjects like English because a pitch about your idea is effectively the same as a persuasive speech. So you kind of get some really divergent projects come out of young people who maybe didn't anticipate that entrepreneurship could be an exciting journey for them. So a couple of the entrepreneurs that we're working with in YX at the moment include Noah Pronk, who runs um, Sticky Pronk out of South Australia. And at 12, he discovered that surf wax contained petrochemicals. In fact, when surf wax was first released, it used to be sold in petrol stations. And he was super horrified by this as like a, an avid surfer and environmentalist and somebody concerned with sustainability. It worried him that the wax that he was putting on his board could be doing damage um, to the wildlife and animals in the ocean. So he started grabbing his mum's like pots and pans and Googled what ingredients went into surf wax and started mixing his own surf wax. And actually, I've got his first block of wax with these tiny little blocks uh, of wax that he was mixing at home and wrapping in brown paper. And over the course of the last two years, we've worked with Noah to refine his branding. The Sticky Prompt brand was this cool stick man figure that he'd drawn. So we've connected him to branders to refine his brand. We've actually got him eco-friendly packaging. He was one of the first um, surf wax brands in Australia to start producing his wax in reusable tins so that you could buy refills for your wax. And he's got about 40 stockists around the country and certainly fielding interest internationally for his surf wax. And he's 14, which is super exciting, I think, for him to be engaged in a business idea that he's passionate about, but also to be able to work with a young person to see growth in things like his business and also in lots of other life skills. When I first met Noah, the thought of speaking in front of other people terrified him. And now uh, he spoke at one of our premier innovation festivals in South Australia this year, was on stage in front of, you know, 400 people chatting about Sticky Pronk and has been nominated for a number of awards. So I think the interesting part for me is we see this remarkable growth in the idea, but perhaps most powerful is the remarkable growth we see in the young person for having that mentoring and that support and that coaching, which I think is really cool. And a lot of our entrepreneurs, because when they're 13 or 14, when they start, they kind of become serial entrepreneurs. So the idea that we might be working with them now might be three or four businesses deep in what they started at 12 and 13. And they're constantly learning and evolving and pivoting and then creating, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's really fun to watch. I'd be curious, and you might not know the answer to this, but I've found when I've spoken with a lot of students who are really successful you know, in business or who have written books or who are doing so many things outside of school. I'm curious how he's doing in school or if he's getting any credit in school for the things that he's learning in life and in your programs or how those things collaborate or don't. That's such a great question. I think there is still a disconnect between enterprise and education. And for some reason, we find a lot of schools see this entrepreneurial journey as something that sits outside of the education system. And so, yes, I, I would say that in his experience, there's a disconnect. I don't know that his school would be 
entirely aware of all of the exciting things that he's doing outside of school with his business. But what's been an interesting emergence, certainly for us here in Australia beyond COVID, is that a lot of the tertiary institutions are reimagining what entry looks like for young people into their degrees. And so, I mean, I know that in the US, there is this sort of portfolio experience that young people put forward. But for us here in Australia, traditionally, it's been just your end of year 12 marks that either get you in or don't get you into your chosen degree. Um, And there's a number of large tertiary institutions now in Australia that are looking at enterprising young people like NOAA and that being the portfolio that they enter into degrees because they're looking to bring that life experience into that tertiary experience. So certainly whilst the disconnect has been evident, I do think that the gap has been bridged at the moment, which is exciting. Yeah, that's good to hear. It's good to hear that there's change and people are starting to look at different things. Here, it's partially on grades and it's partially on exams. Like there was the SAT and ACT. And at least I'm in California and all of our state schools have gotten rid of those over COVID and have said that they're not coming back. So they're really starting to look more at, you know, what is the portfolio and who is the student instead of did they understand these specific facts on this specific day and could they spit them back out on a test? (laughs) 100%. Like knowledge is not king anymore. I just, I remember being in my year 10 maths class and my maths teacher saying to me like, Nicole, you really need to pay attention to this. Like, it's not like you're going to have a calculator in your pocket everywhere you go. I remember my math teacher saying that. (laughs) I've got that calculator, you know, and I've also got every encyclopedia ever created. And so if knowledge is actually, you know, literally seconds away from being found, but what our young people need is those future capabilities, those like competencies that help them to use that knowledge in a really productive way. So how are we building like really strong collaborators? Because project management is going to be an element of every role moving forward, regardless of the industry that you work in. How do we build creative, innovative thinkers so that young people can use their initiative to design interesting solutions and critical literacy? So how do we know that the information that a young person has harvested from the internet is actually the right information to use in context? And I think this is the biggest challenge for education at the moment is we've got really good at teaching knowledge for a test. How do we get better at building capabilities in a really explicit way? That's a great lead-in to my next question. So you're talking about building capabilities and creating collaborators and creative, innovative thinkers and building critical literacy and critical thinking skills and you know the ability to look at the sources and see if what you're looking at is true or less true. What do you believe the future of education should or could look like? I think there's been lots of really tough things that have come out of COVID, but if anything, I think it's accelerated people diving into this question. What does education really look like if we take down perhaps some of the preconceived notions we have about what education should look like based on what it's always looked like? For me, I think education needs to be personal, not personalized, but personal. So we need to find a way for young people to connect to the curriculum they're delivering. I think that we need to be looking at how within our curriculum delivery, we are explicitly teaching the future capabilities. So what are they? What do they look like? How do we create formative assessment tasks and summative assessment tasks that assess those future capabilities and then empower young people to track and map their progress in those future capabilities to build their literacy to be able to say, do you know what? Like I'm a really great critical thinker, but I struggle in collaboration because these some of the dispositions that I currently have, and I'm working on this. 
at the moment, I think a lot of our education system sits around the teacher being the expert and the deliverer of, of all the feedback. And I think in order to build a generation of young people that can thrive in what the future of work will be, we actually need to ensure that we're creating a generation of young people that are more autonomous in the way that they learn and that they're able to seek feedback, be hungry for feedback, and then use feedback to get better without relying on an adult to tell them what they're doing wrong and what they need to do differently. And that requires such a significant shift in the way that we deliver a curriculum in the classroom because it's no longer us at the front of the room delivering content. It's kind of the facilitation of learning opportunities that enable young people the space to kind of play. That's not to say that there's not a place for explicit teaching. I don't think we do away with explicit teaching because young people need to understand the foundation concepts before they can apply those in a project-based learning space. But I think the future of education is moving away from knowledge and moving towards capabilities and building a generation of young people that are critical, collaborative, creative problem solvers. Because we have a generation of young people that can walk into any space, identify a problem, propose a solution, and then enact that solution. We're going to be okay. That would be a lovely, lovely idea of education. You know, if any of us could walk in and see a problem, identify a problem, notice what's happening and come up with an idea for a way to help and be a part of the solution. I think really what I hear you describing is building such a self-awareness for students. If we're going to self-evaluate and if we're going to empower students to track and map what that looks like, like, great, I'm a really good collaborator. I have these sets of skills, but I'm not as good at creativity. Like, how do I become more creative? But for so many of us, understanding those skills and those traits about ourselves is a huge step that we're often not taught at all in school, right? Because we take in so much information and content and we take tests and we spit it back out and we do this all the way through college until suddenly we're in a job position and a boss or a senior leader is saying, oh, well, I need you to collaborate with this group of people and create a solution to this. And you're like, I didn't learn that in biology 101, right? (laughs) Exactly. And you know what I think part of the complexity of that is? To create that self-awareness, you have to be allowed to fail. Because if you're not enabled the space to fail and then the space to reflect on that failure in order to conceive what you should have done differently or reflect on what you should have done differently, then you can't actually, self-awareness can't be created. And the challenge, I think, for a lot of educators is we save our young people rather than serving them. So we save them from failure because we move into education as a vocation because we desperately want to support our young people. But in robbing them from those failures, we actually rob them from the very learning experiences they need in order to become more self-aware of where they're at and where they need to go. Yeah, such a good point and builds into so much of what is talked about with growth mindset and really creating that opportunity to fail forward. Or the mindset of, I haven't failed, but I found something that didn't work. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the fundamentals of our education system don't support that, right? I was an English teacher, so that's my background. You know, a young person writes the draft, they submit it to the teacher, I mark up everything that they've done wrong, they change those things and they hand it in. There's no failure there. And certainly if there was a young person who was struggling, like I think sometimes leadership also place a responsibility on teachers to kind of rescue that young person before they fail that final task. But particularly in like our lower high school years, that's the perfect place for young people to suck at things and then use those experiences of, you know what, I didn't get that assignment done and I failed. And that felt really bad. 
And I want to avoid that really terrible feeling by doing something different next time. Whereas if around me, all of my adults rescue me, whether that be my parent or my teacher, the learning in that experience is it doesn't matter how disorganized I am. It doesn't matter how late I leave this assignment. Somebody will find a way to fix this for me so that I don't have to fix it myself. It's such an interesting thing. We have teachers that are are obviously talking about how their young people are not self-sufficient and they're not hungry for learning. But in many ways, we've created this situation for ourselves by rescuing our young people and saving them rather than kind of stepping back in the right moments in a learning journey to enable that failure in a safe and supportive space. And then stepping in after the failure to lead that young person through a targeted reflection on, cool, tell me what happened there. What went wrong? Like, what would you do differently? Why would it matter to do it differently next time? Because failure without reflection is a waste. So that critical role of the educator is in leading that reflective process afterwards and then providing the pathways for the student to take that learning into the next learning environment. As you're creating these experiences for students and creating a rich environment for them to create and to thrive, are you also working on training educators and working with educator teams? Because as we talk about becoming self-aware and being able to understand your own strengths and weaknesses and how to improve, that's a whole other challenge for educators as well, because they've also been taught in many cases how to teach giving content, not how to be a coach and a facilitator of learning. So how are you working with that dynamic? It's so critical. I think a lot of the time, for me, one of the things that I think we overestimate the ability of is educators' ability to create curriculum. I think we have really experienced heads of learning, particularly over here in Australia, that have never had to create a piece of curriculum from scratch because there's always been kind of a skeleton that's existed before. And so when we're constantly rebuilding on what's been before, we're not actually changing anything that we've done. With our program Future Anything, our teachers deliver this learning experience in the classroom. So they get a a fully resourced curriculum to run with, which is great because it saves you a lot of planning over the summer period before you walk into the year. But a cornerstone component of our program is actually the professional learning that occurs before the teachers deliver that program. So we run like an induction process with the lead teacher where we talk through the pedagogy that their teaching team are going to need to adopt in order to facilitate this learning in a really positive way. We then run a full day of professional learning with all the teaching teams and they're desperate to dig into the logistics, right? Because as a teacher, we just want to see the lesson plans and know what we're teaching. But we actually take them back and look at the pedagogy of project-based learning and teacher as a facilitator and what is an entrepreneurial mindset and the capabilities that underpin this kind of thinking and how do we teach those in the classroom? Because once we sort of work with the educator around that mindset building and the pedagogy required, the curriculum becomes easy. And then throughout the delivery of the program, we work with our teaching teams through coaching conversations. So they've actually got the opportunity to kind of course correct as they're delivering along the way. At the end of the day, confident teachers produce really great curriculum and you can't have really great curriculum and teaching and learning for young people unless your teachers feel really comfortable and confident in the classroom. So the critical component of this is always the capacity building of the educator and the relationship that our team has with that teaching team so that we can support them because there's no such thing as plug and play curriculum, right? Like teaching in one classroom is entirely, you can teach two year nine English classes in the same school and still have an entirely different experience. And so having that coach on the side that can help you course correct as you're delivering that curriculum and kind of troubleshoot some of those complexities they come up is a critical part of the program. 
Yeah, definitely. I run an elementary school, so I work with younger kids. And I love to ask everyone to share a story that you remember from your elementary school years. So as a young person, I was a swimmer. So most of my really strong memories for both primary school and high school sit in that swimming experience. I was like the eldest of five kids in my family. Are you the eldest in your family or where do you fit in your family? I'm an only child. Okay, cool. That's a completely (laughs) separate model. But I don't know whether you'd fit in the oldest or the youngest then. So the eldest child typically is that like really diligent student who or young person who kind of does everything they're told because they've got like the hardest rules in the family. So, you know, my elementary experience was very much framed around um, working really hard at school and then also like swimming. And so swimming carnivals for me were like the highlight of my school year. I also have a distinct memory of in year five. I'm not a very coordinated young person on land. Like I'm super great in the water, but I suck (laughs) on land. And I remember with some encouragement from my friends being asked to jump on the monkey bars, like in grade five as a child. And I remember like jumping up and like having my legs over like the monkey bar and like hanging upside down and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm nailing this. Like, I don't know why I've been so scared of the monkey bars all of my life. Like I'm so good. And then I wanted to get down and I forgot that you needed to like grab the bar with your hands before you released your feet and unceremoniously fell to the ground and broke my wrist (laughs) and was in a lot of pain for a couple of weeks after that. But I've always reflected on that experience because despite the injury off the back of that, it's been something that I've reflected on because I was really proud of myself for being brave and giving it a go. And even though something didn't work out the other side of it, and I, you know, I had this cast for the next six weeks, I also got like ice cream for dinner for like the next three nights because my parents were really sympathetic to my broken arm. And I had a really fun time having everybody ride on my cast. So I've always kind of remembered that even out of like the challenging or the bad stuff that happens, there's always like a really good outcome that comes out the other side of that. You have to fail to be able to reflect and conceive of something better. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And every now and again, my wrist clicks and I reflect on that value moment. (laughs) Still reflecting. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right, Nicole, thank you so much. How can people reach out and get in touch with you? I would love that. So our Future Anything website is futureanything.com. So please reach out there. I'm also on LinkedIn. So I'd, I'd love for people to connect on LinkedIn or on Twitter. And then, yeah, I'd love to hear about how maybe entrepreneurial education or entrepreneurial pedagogy is going in your schools. And if there's any way for us to kind of support and help, then yeah, please reach out and let us know. And if you've also broken your arm on the monkey bars, then I'd also love to hear that story too. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thanks so much. Thank you everyone for listening to the Rebel Educator Podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. Rebel Educators.